This episode is brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. If this is your first time listening, this podcast focuses on the business of law, how the largest corporate law departments and their law firms do business. Last week, Big Law Business hosted our third annual summit at Bloomberg headquarters in New York City. For today's episode, we're bringing you a roundtable discussion from that summit about the business of law. Bloomberg Business Week's editor, Megan Murphy, served as our moderator. The panelists included two in-house leaders and two law firm leaders, the chief legal officer of Morgan Stanley, Eric Grossman, the head of legal for Capital One, Matthew Cooper, the chair of Venable, Stuart Ingus, and Latham and Watkins litigation and trial chair, Jamie Wine. Our podcast begins with Wine responding to a question about the challenges that law firms face both retaining and attracting talent. I probably spend about 1,200 additional hours a year on on management uh, tasks of a a variety of of things. Um, And retaining talent and attracting talent is absolutely one of the biggest things. I was on our executive committee. I'm now running our global litigation department. And when we look at our department, I mean, we are there to serve the needs of our clients. That's why we exist. It's why we're there. So we have to constantly be looking at what are the challenges that our clients are facing, where are our clients? Where are their businesses moving? What are the geographies and practice areas that are most important to them? And then we need to look at our talent pool and make sure that we have people that can service our clients' needs in the way that they need them. So as an example, you know, 10 years ago, hardly anyone was really talking about fintech. But now all the firms are getting together to have these fintech practices to make sure that we're responding to the needs of our clients. And there's a host of examples like that. Um, when the regulators themselves became more global and started coordinating a lot of these investigations that Eric's talking about, we had to make sure that we had people, not only in the U.S., where, of course, a lot of us have been strong for a long time and bringing in people from the U.S. Attorney's Office and the SEC's Office and various regulators to make sure we could deal with those issues here, but we had to make sure that we had the right people in the U.K., people who had experience um, with the FSO and the, the SFO and the other regulators over there, make sure we have people in Hong Kong who deal with the regulatory authorities there. And so we're constantly looking at are we matching up with our clients' needs and making sure that we are retaining talent that we have or bringing in talent that we need to make sure that we can do that. Matt, I um I read an article about you I mentioned in Modern Council, I think it was, and it's a, you're from Kentucky, right? Tennessee. Tennessee, Tennessee, sorry. Um, but yeah, was, was sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, <laughs> one of those days. Um, and grew up working at a, worked at a Wendy's, and it's a little, it's a good anecdote about talking about how you really got vested with some of your fellow workers about ownership in the, in the, in the, in the stake, even though it was probably, what, a summer job or a full-time, you know, sort of between school job or an after school yeah. job. 
um, and how you've really used that principle to shape the way you work, the way uh, you treat staff, build staff, grow your teams, but want them to feel this vested ownership stake in the business. I'm just curious sort of how that leadership philosophy works in practice, how you get people on board with it, and how you actually make it happen in practice in, you know, the legal, in, a, in a legal function. Yeah, thanks. Um, the hiring test I would like to employ, which I've never had the guts to do, is to put out a piece of trash in the parking lot and watch lawyers come in and then just kind of observe as to whether they pick it up or, or, or not. Uh, but I've not yet uh, tried that. Um, but the, the job that was mentioned is I was uh, worked at Wendy's, a 16-year-old kid, and I remember one day we were just slammed at lunch and people were out the door and cars were in the drive through and we were working really, really uh, hard. And at the end, the assistant manager was kind of counting up the receipts and was sort of excited because it was the biggest lunch we'd had in like a quarter. It was like a $1,500 lunch. And so I remember just uh, absorbing that excitement. And the next time that we were slammed, thinking like, let's beat that last uh, lunch and see if we can beat $1,500. And there was two or three of us who were just hustling around to try to beat this record. And it didn't matter at all, I'm sure, to you know the Wendy's executives, and we made three thirty-five an hour. And it's a little bit of a self-indulgent story, but um, I've just had this uh, notion from then on that there are essentially two types of employees, those that have an owner mentality and really understand uh, what the business is trying to accomplish it, and they want to try to accomplish it, and those that have an employee mentality that are just um, wondering about what they can get out of the employment uh, relationship. And uh, I've really tried over the years to try to seek out those that have that uh, ownership mentality. And one thing I've noticed is in a lot of organizations, most people kind of are in a mixed place on this uh, because certainly, you know, um, uh, we all have our cynical attitudes sometimes about work. But there's usually only takes changing out one or two people to get the momentum of the entire group going in the right direction um, and create that tipping point. And so I've been, been able to lead a few teams. And usually I take a year or two to kind of assess the situation. But it, um, it's usually one or two people that need to go and one or two people that need to come in. And an entire team kind of can take on that uh, ownership mentality. And the other um, thing that I try to do is provide as much context to the team of what the business is trying to accomplish and how they fit in to that. And um, uh, why they would be, you know, uh, happy being a part of that. So that's how I do that. And are you, have you been quite in sort of moving people in and out when you need it to sort of get that done, get that change happen? Um, fairly easy process? Difficult? You know, um, um, I always treat that take that responsibility very uh, seriously because there are uh, people's lives at stake. And I, I remember one of the first times that, that I managed a team and a bunch of people sent me holiday cards that year that were on my new team. And I just remember being struck and looking at the holiday cards at the kids in those cards of like, oh my gosh, like those are kids whose parents are coming home from work talking about their day at work, talking about their opportunities. If that person's laid off or is terminated, that really impacts that family in a big way. And so it's a very rare thing that that needs to um, happen. Um, uh, but it does sometimes need to happen. I've been fortunate enough uh, to work uh, at Capital One. We've had an extraordinarily sort of humane way of dealing with those things over time, both in terms of lead time and, um, and generous severance packages. But there are times when it's just best for the team for people uh, to move on. And um, so it's not an easy process at all. It really should never be an easy uh, process, uh, but sometimes it's an important uh, part of the transformation of a team. Stuart, you 
became chair last August, were elected last August, and have been actually in the chair since January, I February. Yep. February. Okay. Just talk through a little bit of that, speaking of, you know, on transition and transformation, how much of a chain that's, change that's been for you in terms of your responsibility, in terms of that role? What has, what was expected about it, what, and what was unexpected in terms of some of the challenges? Sure, sure. Just on your point, though, on trash, you know, if there was trash out <laughs> yeah. in the parking lot now, if you were Venable or Latham, the lawyers would pick up the trash and they'd throw it away. <laughs> Our competitors out there would also pick up the trash, but they'd bill you for it. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the transition for, for me has actually been fairly smooth. We had a, a chairman who had been there for... Uh, the chairman for about a dozen years and another 10 before that as managing partner and had really set up strong systems, people systems um, throughout the firm. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been um, focused on is going around and meeting the partners at a, at a deeper level than um, just the ones I had worked with over my time there. And um, as we think about kind of uh, as our firm continues to grow, as the legal marketplace continues to shift, how do we um, develop teams, more camaraderie within teams? Because, um, and, and kind of building uh, a little bit off some of the earlier points, what we find is that the best legal work for clients um, comes from where we have strong teams and lawyers that have stayed with us and have had careers with us for a long time, you get the benefit of that group think, which is unique, and all of the benefit uh, that comes when people have worked together. And, you know, there's almost a shared knowledge of experience that we think uh, in, in our most successful areas really distinguishes uh, our lawyers. Uh, one thing I wanted to uh, speak to kind of you all about that we haven't touched on yet in terms of challenges is just disruptiveness and disruption. Um, because obviously I was with one of uh, a leading Chinese investor in social media platforms, other kind of platforms the other week, and we were talking about automation and professional services and industries that uh, w even in, when I was a practicing a lawyer, which is many, many years ago now, but you know, you would never even think that these jobs could be done by not, by not human beings, could be done by robots, but it is accelerating tremendously. And how much of that are you looking at, thinking about, both in the financial services more generally, but in, in the legal function, legal and compliance function, in terms of automation, how much of a disruptor that's going to be? Eric, I'll go to you first. Well, it's a, it's a tricky question because I, I think um, and we talk about this not only as it relates to the my function, but just our business as a yeah. whole. So you mentioned fintech, right? So we have 16,000 financial advisors at Morgan Stanley spread out across the country who provide advice, you know, largely, you know, person to person. Um, and so the, 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 the question of, you know, will people take advice, which is ultimately in law it would be advice, right? Advice from a non-human, I think is a, is a, is a product ultimately of, of a number of different inputs. But first it's sort of generational, right? So we all know folks out there who, you know, who will never get into a car without holding the steering wheel, right? I mean, but we know that, that, that self-driving cars are coming. So across the sort of spectrum, the sort of age continuum and then sort of, you know, you know, sophistication um, continuum and then and I think even some geographic continuum, people are going to have a different approaches to whether they're willing to accept uh, 
self-driving cars or advice that is the product of smart learning or artificial intelligence as it analyzes um, particular uh, issues. And across the spectrum of issues that people will want a human to opine on versus a machine, of course, there'll be a spectrum there. And there clearly are, are going to be and, I, and, you know, this was predicted years ago mm-hmm. in law, and it just never kind of materialized in the way that, that there would be machines that would do document review and spit out the relevant documents. And now what we've seen is they'll call the documents, but they really can't analyze the documents. Then they, they give you, you know, they take 10 million documents, and then they give you a million, and then you still right. need humans to look at the million and say, okay, how does that all fit together? So... Um, and document review, just an analyst an analysis, just being one, uh, you know, uh, and then clearly on, and, and that I would put at the more sophisticated as a litigator, former litigator, I would say at the more sophisticated end of, boy, it really takes a human to say this is how that fits into that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, uh, do I need a license to operate this business in this place? And here's what it should look like. And here are the components of an application. Well, a machine ought to be able to spit that out for you. So across that continuum, there's going to be change. And obviously, the machines are getting way smarter. Uh, but all of us as as consumers of legal services uh, and people, and then ultimately from just consumers of legal services to people who have real problems, like life and death problems, you're going to want to talk to it. I'm convinced that for a long, long time, you're still going to want to talk to a human. Mm. Um, and so I, I, it's good. I think there's going to be change. There's going to be disruption. I don't think it's going to mean the end of, of law firms. I do think it's going to put a lot of pressure on, um, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the law firm model because the, yeah. the, the younger lawyers who uh, in the past sort of did some of this more commoditized work um, there's going to be less of it, and uh, sustaining the kind of pyramid model mm-hmm. that uh, that supports both uh, the practice and the economics of big law firms is going to be under stress. And that's against a backdrop where I'm, I just still think there's there's a lot of lo- a lot of law firms in this country, and I'm, it's not clear to me that that all of them are going to make it through kind of this post crisis cycle and the consolidation that I'm convinced is still going to come. Okay, I definitely want to bring Jamie in on this. Yeah. Okay. i got to ask you one question. Do young lawyers still go to the printer? No. Okay, the printer nobody, is done. Nobody okay. goes to the printer anymore. <laughs> no. Does the nobody printer go? Okay. I, I never went to the printer. Oh, man. I went to the printer. That was, was fun. Yeah. Those were the yeah. days. Those were the anymore. days. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think but, that was the day I left the uh, <laughs> I'm happy to pick up on yeah, that, Yeah, I really want though. you to pick up I, you on know, this. First of all, personally, we talk about generationally, I, I'm a complete dinosaur. I'm not on social media. I still use a BlackBerry and get abused every day for it. And so a lot of I still have a BlackBerry. It still works. I can. I can. I've been told maybe in six months I'm not going to be able to, but I'm still hanging on. Um, Security risk. But, you know, from a from the firm standpoint and how we think about what we're doing and, and evolution, again, our number one goal is to provide the best client service and to do it efficiently and effectively. And so if there are technologies out there that have the potential to help us provide better legal services, I think we have an obligation to explore them, you know, along with our clients to see what can they really do, what can they deliver, how can they help us, can we trust it, 
And we are doing that. I mean, Latham has always been on the forefront of technology. We have partnered with, um, I forget the name, but it's a, a sub of IBM on one of their AI products that they are um, putting out there. And we're basically in like a beta testing phase, a little bit on the litigation side with discovery, but we're really starting it heavy on due diligence, mm-hmm. which is essentially is like discovery on the corporate side of things, but it can be a little bit more routine if you need to just go in and do due diligence and see how many of these types of contracts with these vendors exist and all that. And we're just we're just playing with it. I mean, on our own dime to kind of see what would happen if we use this technology instead of humans to do the due diligence review. Um, and we're in the process of doing that and assessing it. And look, in a lot of ways, the technology has gotten really good and it can do a lot for you. It can do a lot, particularly when you're looking for things in a set of documents and it can spit back to you kind of what's in there. Um, as Eric said, you, you definitely still need human beings to then use their judgment and analytical skills to, to process what that means. But I do think the technology still has a lot of holes. For example, a lot of times in corporate due diligence, the most important thing is what's not in a contract. Mm-hmm. And nobody's yet been able to explain to me how this AI technology can tell me what provision isn't in a contract that really needs to be there. And if we don't pick up on it, you know, our client is screwed down the road. So it's a process. We're trying to do it. Again, if, if it's helpful and our clients think it's helpful, it's going to be something that we take advantage of. But I think everybody's very much in the analysis and testing phase still. Stuart, I want to pick up on you on this big firm point and then go to Matt on, as a consumer of legal services from the, as an external sort of buyer of legal services. But Stuart, when you look at this in terms of the pressure on the model, in terms of particularly with young lawyers, their rates, um, potentially some of this work being automated, how much, going to Eric's point, do you think there will be much more consolidation um, and just that the business will be challenged in a way that it just hasn't so far and that it can't actually build out at the numbers it has in the past to justify the kind of hiring rates, particularly with people, so many people still coming through. So um, I, I kind of I'll build on what Eric said and agree with him. I, I think what you're going to see, and it's already, it's been happening for a couple of decades in the profession, some of it's rate driven, which has kind of kept the model, um, is that you have a number of firms, 100, 200 or so, that um, are playing and maybe some boutiques, but at a, at a certain rate level. And that's the type of work that firms like mine, firms like uh, Latham want to do um, and want to do that premium work. And the, the lower end work or the lower price point work, I think, is a lot of the work where the AI um, comes into play. Even the lower part of the work that fuels you know, where we're providing the high-end and judgment work, I think that that lower work um, probably will come into play. And, and that, that has already been being pushed out part by the, the recession, but, um, but even just the uh, evolution of law firms and the globalization of the world that's been um, furthering efficiency, you'll wind up with a more efficient model. I don't think, though, that you can replicate um, uh, computers aren't going to advocate, uh, right? Um, they can't, and and you know we're we're getting uh, hired in most matters to advocate, even when we're doing deals. It, it's advocating terms of the deals, and if you want to be a good advocate, you have to have all of that underlying information, and you have to have absorbed it and learned it. So maybe it can be compiled by a machine, but it can't be absorbed by a machine in order to to advocate. So uh, I think it will result in a changed model. You know, you could look at it in a way that it'll be a changed model and 
geez, how are you going to support um, big firm partner, equity partner salaries without all of this other money feeding into it? You know, one could say, well, you can. Another thing would say, well, you still have this certain demand here. Maybe the rates of wind up even being higher at the high end here. I mean, so you don't know. Consolidation, I think, just to briefly on that, is a, is a tricky issue. Um, a lot of what's driving co- consolidation right now is just a, a demand, a, a need, a pure business need for increase in revenue. It's all about driving revenue. It's not profitability. It's not reduced. It's all revenue. And um, I think over the long term, um, particularly where technology is going, you could make a case for um, almost the opposite of consolidation, where you, you get smaller boutiques or smaller areas of, of very efficient expertise that would say you don't need to be in these huge conglomerates, which their existence by themselves creates huge costs and overhead that on an efficiency standpoint, you may be able to, to get rid of to preserve where rates are. So I'd, I don't jump to consolidation other than what's driving it now, which is to further revenues in an area of flat uh, demand. Matt, as a consumer of sort of legal services, how much are you looking at you know, rationalization, efficiency? How much has that changed, say, even over the past, since you've been at Capital One, for example? Yeah, well, I will state the the death of the billable hour has been overstated for, you know, a decade or two. We keep seeing Indeed. profits going up at firms, rates going up at firms, starting salaries going up at firms. And so there is something to this notion that for the most sophisticated matters, the best um, advisors are going to be able to charge a premium compared to what they used to. It's becoming more of a uh, winner-take-all economy in law like it is in so many other industries. The one... Uh, but I would say I think it's not – but in those matters themselves, the some of the work done as part of it, we're um, – and we have for many years, and I'm sure uh, a lot of people are doing this, requesting that the document discovery uh, work, the document review work, the due diligence review work be done by a lower-cost service provider, maybe a vendor that's got a lot of um, – uh, machine learning and uh, 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 computer capabilities to help drive down the costs. So even on a huge litigation matter where we want the former AUSA who knows the prosecutor and understands the risk, we want the documents reviewed by another firm that charges us a lot less. And so I think that's where you're going to see a pressure on some of the economics of uh, the law firm, uh, the law firm model. Uh, I was thinking, I, the reason I did leave the law is because I could never figure out those clocks on your desktop, because it was old school and you'd have to put in six minutes, you know, if you were on a phone call, and I would get home every night and I'd say, I was there for 21 hours, why can't someone yeah. just fill in those clocks? So I think young lawyers would, would benefit from that. Um, Jamie, I want to shift text just a little bit and talk about something. We talked about recruiting and talent. I want to talk about diversity as well. Um, not because you're the woman, but because I read an article about you that in an interview where you said, talking about women and, and keeping retention in the profession, so many of my people from my class uh, from law school actually are no longer lawyers or are doing something slightly different, myself included, but a slightly different journey. Um, and you said, you said something that I thought was really resonated with me. You said, you know, what I really want to tell them is to stick with it, you know, that... And you said life has a funny way of working out, uh, even if it doesn't, even if you're nervous about juggling family responsibilities. Obviously, you've had a lot of firm responsibilities as opposed as as well as your practice, as well as family commitments. Uh, do you think that um, firms are, are changing that or are, are doing enough now to not just with women, but with other diverse populations to 
keep them in to retain to to address those challenges about some of the attrition rates we see in let's call it big law. Mm -hmm. So I think we're certainly trying, and I think a lot of the firms are trying, um, but the issue is we're not really seeing a ton of change, or at least not seeing change as quickly as we'd like to see it. And I think it's so complicated when you try to get into the reasons why. So I don't believe that we as a firm are doing, on the margins, we might be doing some things better than other firms in terms of having good policies and doing everything we can to encourage, um, if we're talking about women, women to stick around or diverse associates to stick around and make it as easy and welcoming for them as possible. Um, and I think we're doing a really good job of that, but others are. And to me, it's just a, it's a bigger issue, I think, in a lot of ways, and people don't like to hear this always, but I think it's still societal pressures or norms that are still there. So if I see um, a young male associate who's doing well, they're often you know, driven to keep doing well and make partner or go off to go in-house and have a successful career. And their, their focus is really that. There's never really this option of kind of jumping out of that altogether. When you see female associates, um, if they're in a situation sometimes um, where they don't necessarily have to do what we do for a living from a financial standpoint, I think it is a little easier for them to look at someone like me and go, like, I don't want that life. <laughs> you know, she works her ass off, she's never home, she travels all the time, and I don't really need that. And in, unless you're driven and kind of wired that way to want that, it's just a little easier still, I think, to step out of that and say, I'm going to go do something that seems a little easier right now, and I don't have to worry about financial security or whatever. And what that's, that's the point where I want to try to get to women, because I think they look at it and they say, it's so hard to get from where I am right now to where I see a really successful senior partner. And I see all these roadblocks, and maybe I'm not even married yet, and I don't know how I'm going to sort it out when I have kids, and that just kind of seems totally impossible to do. And I, I often just try to talk to them and say, don't sit here today and go, I need to sort out what my life is going to look like 30 years from now. Like, none of us can know that. I didn't know that when I was a young associate. I had no idea. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And I just encourage women who are good and who really want it to just just stick it out and go with it. It will work out. You will figure it out whatever it is, whether you want a life partner or you don't, whether you want kids or you don't, whether you really want to stay here or ultimately you want to go do something else with your career. Just stick with it. Do a great job. See what opportunities come your way as you're progressing through your career. And there are ways, there are always ways to sort it out. You know, the firm will be supportive. Um, there are ways in your life to figure out whatever support networks you need. And you just, you don't need to solve it right now. And I see too many, to me, I see too many women trying to solve it right now when they're a fourth year associate and they just kind of back out. And that's, that's what's always um, just a bummer for me. I don't like to see them kind of opt out at that point. Stuart, you were nodding there a lot. Just, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. I agree with all of that. I mean, diversity and inclusion is a hugely important issue at our firm, but but across all firms. I, you know, as I talk to other um, peers at, at other firms, we're hearing the same thing across the board. And and I think it really is all about, um, and, it, and it's for for all of our younger lawyers, making sure they have opportunities to succeed to whatever level they want to. I mean, if you're if you're a associate at any of the top law firms. By definition, you have tremendous ability, I mean, with rare exception. And 
we want to create those opportunities. And, and back to what I was saying earlier about um, if you get groups and the best lawyers for our clients and the people that feel the most reward in the work they're doing are the ones that stick with it, that see through it, that build these teams. So we're, we're looking constantly, uh, we're looking again with a real focus on it now on ways to um, make sure that those opportunities are there for anybody who, who wants to pursue them and to encourage them to, to kind of see it through. I don't want to embarrass Eric here, but when we were prepping for this, I spoke with his assistant, Aunt Mia, and uh, I, I do panels and I always have these pre-calls and his assistant was so effusive about how great he is as a boss. I've never, I rarely hear that when I do these calls. And I said to her, I said, this is, it's, it's unbelievable to me how, how happy, I mean, singing his praises, saying he's such a great boss, you know. And, and so I wanted to just pick up on, not that people don't say nice things about their boss and um, these conversations are not recorded, but, um, but I wanted to just pick up on that in terms of holding yourself out as a leader, you know, what you think has, makes you successful in, a, in an environment that obviously has its good days, has its bad days, has its crisis-filled moments. But, you know, looking at that and, 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 and leading, from, leading from position, leading with authority and how you think, how you've developed over your time there and want to push forward. Ooh, another big question. <laughs> well, it gets back to, uh, I, I think, I don't know, but I, I think a part of it comes from what I sort of said before in terms of interaction with... Um, with CEOs of different stripes and the like, and I feel the same way about my colleagues at work, which is I really enjoy just engaging with people. All, all and I don't really care. I learned this from my grandfather, who you know, my grandfather was the son of immigrants, grew up on the Lower East Side, um, uh, then moved moved uptown to the South Bronx, uh, got drafted, fought in World War II, lost his kid brother, came back, married his high school sweetheart, my grandmother, who. Uh, came here from Warsaw when she was eight years old, lost most of her family in the Holocaust. They opened up a little store in the Bronx on 137th Street and Brook Avenue. And then that little store became a big store. And my grandfather was the informal mayor of 137th Street and Brook Avenue as the neighborhood went from a sort of mixed Jewish, Jewish, Irish immigrant neighborhood. It became a largely Puerto Rican neighborhood. He learned how to speak Spanish. He just and my grandfather, he didn't care the customers, the garbage man. He didn't care who you were. He just loved interacting. And I watched that as I was growing up. And I don't, you know, people at work talk all the time about like work-life balance. That's like the, you know, where it's it's all life. There's work, home, and you get that. But it's all life. In fact, we all spend most of our more of our waking hours in the office over the course of a particular certainly week and maybe in a year and if you're not not every day not every minute but if you're not getting a bang and a charge out of what you're doing and the people you're interacting with then what kind of like what are you doing so i i at least where i have you don't always have control if you're an outside you don't control your clients who they are you know you're you hope that they're they're people that you like. I stay in touch with lots of my old clients from when I was in private practice. But one thing, if you run a group like I do, you do get to control is the people on your team. And so we spend a lot of time. Uh, first of all, we make sure the people on the team, and we and we push this down into the organization that we're giving them the feedback, good and bad, mm-hmm. uh, and we try and push that all the time, all the way down in the organization. So people who ultimately whose careers are, I mean, you always have sponsors and mentors who are people thinking about your career, but no one should be thinking about your career as much as you're thinking about your career. But you got to be armed with information. So particularly for our high potential female and diverse candidates, we make sure we overload them with data on how they're doing. 
And then uh, we try and tell folks when you staff your team, staff them with people who want you to succeed as a manager. Which usually means you have a relationship that's more than just transactional, but that transcends, in some sense, um, you know, into the what I view as sort of the whole equation, the work life, work work home uh, equation. So that's that's what I try and do in in the group, and the management part of the job is my favorite. Um, I really like that because we've got great people and um, and we have a shared set of values and culture and a common goal, which I described before, of helping the business get done, but making sure we don't uh, we don't run afoul of law, regulation, or create franchise or reputational risk for the firm. So we all share this common mission and we try and do our jobs through that prism. Um, so it's I'm very lucky. It's great. I got to spend more time thinking about my career. <laughs> Look, we're such a great panel. I want to open it up to questions. We've got about seven minutes left, and we've got some people with mics. So please, please ask questions. And I see someone in the back there. Yes, you with your hand. Right. That's you. Yes. Uh, we we hear is this on? We hear a lot about millennials. I'm kind of curious. <laughs> I'm kind of curious as to how you feel, how the panel feels about young lawyers, millennials. Yeah, maybe I'll start um, for that one. Um, we certainly hire a lot of millennials, and they're derided, I think, a lot in the press as being uh, not committed to their employers and maybe too focused on uh, quality of life and perhaps uh, 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 thinking about the next job two or three years later. I, I, I tend to think a lot of that research uh, may be the age uh, age research versus generational research, although there certainly could be a generational component to it. And to me, the, um, the strong part about the millennial mindset is one of purpose and that they're looking for purpose broader than just a financial purpose that I think um, can really be powerful if tapped into. And so, uh, I mean, one of the things we talk about on our team as we motivate uh, millennials is that we are not here just to make money. We're a bank that has a special purpose. And at the end of the day, what banks do is take money from people and give them a little bit of interest and loan it to others and charge more interest and keep the difference. And that practice of collecting interest from people has been banned or limited by the world's great religions for thousands of years. It is an extraordinarily uh, important thing uh, to be in the business of, that we uh, have a place in society that gives us permission to do that. We have no inherent right to charge people interest and collect their debt and um, uh, uh, um, unless it's given to us by society. And I think one of the things we talk about is not only the great power that comes from that in terms of allowing people to fulfill their dreams and buy homes and uh, cars and uh, other financial needs, but also the great damage we can do uh, if we don't do it correctly. Eric talked earlier in the one-on-one -on -one interview about some of the financial crisis uh, uh, issues. And, you know, I think it's uh, – America may not agree on much, but they do agree that banks uh, created the financial crisis. And it was a reminder of just sort of the, the, the large role we play, not only in people's individual lives, but in our, in our country's uh, life. And so I think if we kind of tap into that desire for purpose, uh, for millennials. The millennials are also very focused on uh, fairness and diversity and social issues. We, we've been more and more as a corporation, and this is a tricky thing, but I, I, I think it's a good thing, weighing in 
on issues that I don't think corporations would have weighed in on uh, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, one of our first moments, frankly, as a bank, every company kind of has their moment when they make this choice, uh, was weighing in on marriage equality uh, amicus brief before the U.S. Supreme Court. And before then, we had an internal philosophy of we're not going to get involved in issues that don't have to do with hardcore banking. And what we were hearing from our recruits, not just in the legal department, but mostly, in fact, our technology recruits, especially in California, was they wanted to join a company that was making a difference in society and that stood for values that they stood for. And so we've been braver. And and there's a lot of risk, by the way, with uh, some of these choices and companies have gotten on either side of this thing, especially in the last year or so. But being braver about uh, putting some stakes in the ground on some issues that we really uh, believe in. And um, I think I think it's been a force for good, really, that kind of pressure from millennials. Um, so let me pause there. I could go on and on, but uh, others may have comments. Well, we can I ask him a question? Of course you can. Please, go ahead. Uh, given all the wonderful things you just said, how are you guys dealing with the current creeps in Washington, Sessions, Trump, etc.? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, I will say that, first of all... Let's see this answer. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You take that one. (laughs) No, I'd be be happy to answer that question. From a pure business of banking perspective, I think Eric mentioned this earlier, we've not seen a change in really our day-to-day regulatory life. We've got the same regulators. We've got 50 regulators in our offices all day long, every week, worried about the same things. By the way, I think notions of banks treating people well is a pretty uh, protectionist and bipartisan issue. I don't actually expect a lot of regulatory change in the core issues as it relates to consumer banking. The impact of the new administration has largely been one of our, we have 47,000 associates of, um, of, of sort of the internal morale and listlessness and kind of confusion that people have about the time we're in. Not making a statement about one side or the other, but let's just be honest, people were surprised that Trump won. And so I think Trump supporters are sort of used to, um, uh, we didn't expect to win and are kind of used to uh, um, uh, the situation we're in. I think we've had a lot more of people just trying to struggling with what does this mean that we should do as a company in terms of weighing in on things like the travel ban, on on, um, on other issues that the administration has been putting forward. And it's been a struggle, honestly, to kind of figure out the right way to weigh in. But it's really impacted more of our associate morale, I would say, than the true business of banking uh, can I, issues. Can I bring in on just a, that important point you raised? Does anyone else want to talk about the importance of putting stakes in the stakes in the ground on certain issues um, in terms of is it something that you're more reticent to do let's you know removing the politics from it eric no look i just it's tricky that's you know we have fifty-five thousand employees around the globe and we have lots all over the country with different points of view um and uh some of whom are quite happy to be quite vocal about it so we have uh as they should be um I think we we also you know what is this a business issue is this a societal issue um, we struggle with it and we don't have a I don't know it's sort of like, you know we call them as we see them so we came out recently along with lots of the other um, uh, uh, banks and and frankly corporate America in support of the Paris yep. uh, climate accord because um, we think that's the we think that's the right thing to do and we saw so senior management talked about it and we felt like that was the right thing to do uh, also on on marriage equality we you know, we talked about that was the right thing to do but 
you know, then, then you've got five other asks that come in, and some of them are trickier, particularly given the businesses that we, uh, that we engage in and the client base that we have across the country. So it, it's hard. I think there's going to be greater pressure on this issue across the entire corporate and, you know, sphere, uh, sector. Law firms have been kind of different because they've, they've always been sort of very pro bono, uh, community-oriented, uh, standing up for the, the, the little person. And so it's easier for them. And there's, but but in, you don't have to look very far to go the, back to see law firms that have kind of gotten themselves in trouble with some clients by, by taking on pro bono representations or other things. Uh, post 9-11, some law firms really took a lot of heat for, for taking on Guantanamo cases yeah. and things like that. And so it's it's tricky, and it's going to be, and I think with the new gang in town, it's going to be even trickier going forward. Jamie, we don't have that much time left. I'm going to give you last word on that, just in terms of the same tensions in, in, a, in a sort of we have the, We do absolutely the same tensions. We're a huge organization. I mean, not, not that big, but for a law firm, we're a huge organization around the globe. We have, unlike many law firms, we actually have people um, in our firm that have had high-profile uh, positions in both Republican and Democrat administrations, so we have to do a lot to make sure that we're not offending anybody's view one way or the other. We've tried to do the same things in terms of making some core decisions where we think any of our um, uh, employees, partners' rights are being infringed upon or they're being discriminated against. That's something that we can all pretty much bond around and get behind. But when you talk about pro bono matters, um, many of them tend to be on the more liberal side, which, you know, can be seen by good by many, but might not be um, well received by some of our clients. But then you've got, you know, a very conservative partner approaches with a pro bono um, opportunity that itself would offend a large uh, population within our firm. And how do we do that? And do we only approve the kind of real left wing pro bono matters, but not the real right wing ones? And why is that right? So we have to deal with a lot of that too. And I'll just wrap up though on the uh, millennials because I, in our law firm, it's it's absolutely the same thing that the the issue um, with young people the issue with what's going on in our world it's all about the uncertainty and in our election it came right after the brexit thing and with a global organization right you think about we've been building up our uk capabilities because that's just where everything was after new york you need london to be your your next hub and now it's like is it even london or is it frankfurt you know should we be building up our frankfurt offers even more and can frankfurt itself deal with you know the influx of companies and banks and whatever that are going to now descend upon it. I was just in Frankfurt last week and there was all sorts of questions about is there even the housing for all the people who are going to move in because the companies are moving there? Is there schools? Where is everybody's kids going to go? Where, you know, what are they going to do with their families? Uh, so there's a whole host of questions around that and that's what I think um, people are, are worried about. It's not so much you know, Trump bashing. It's, it's what does it mean for our world and our work and our clients and where everything's going. Having lived in both London and Frankfurt, I'm <laughs> going to uh, recommend you keep that London office uh, robust. <laughs> Never count London out. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been a great panel. Eric, Jamie, Matt, Stewart, thank you guys so much. And thanks for having me. It was a trip down memory lane. Thank you.
Thank you again to Matthew Cooper, Eric Grossman, Stuart Ingus, and Jamie Wine for their insights about the business of law. And thank you to Megan Murphy for moderating our panel. This episode, again, was brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. You can learn more about the Big Law Business event series where we recorded this episode there. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at Big Law Biz. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it.